The brothers wish. The brothers wish, brothers wish. The brothers wish. The brothers. You're now listening to Greg. It's the Brothers Whisper. Hey everybody, this is Greg of the Brothers Whisper, number 157, coming hot, coming in hot from Texas. We got a hot, hot mic, guys. Hot mic. Uh, no, actually, we have a hot Nick today. Uh, it's Nick Arellano from uh, Illinois. Everybody, it's me. <laughs> it's me, hot Nick. Why do they call you hot Nick? What's the what's the story behind that nickname? I can't talk about that on the. On this, this is this is a family-friendly Wisp content. Gotcha. So we're gonna point you over to his OnlyFans, and uh, you can hear the story there. Excellent. Done and done. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. So we don't have any new patrons this go around, and that would be fine, folks. To go to Patreon.com/slash/BrothersWisp, sign up and get access to our Patreon-only Slack. But we do have some of our sponsors. And so we are brought to you by Sonar, a scalable, intuitive, and comprehensive ISP billing and operational support system. You can learn more at sonar.software. We also have towercoverage.com. Tower coverage is your RF propagation system to empower your network. Real-time data metrics enable your coverage area, reaching your customer base and more. The industry's best RF propagation mapping system allows website integration for customer signup and pre-qualification. Use this data to scientifically plan network expansion and help your WISP succeed. Get a free trial today at towercoverage.com. So bust over there. Uh, say howdy to all those folks, and we'll jump into the news. Time for the news. Let's see uh, what's happening in here. So I've been crazy busy. I haven't completely fleshed all this stuff out, but guess what? Half of our podcast disappeared last time, so we still have things that we can talk about from that. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. So what's some of the uh, the new-ish stuff I saw? So Microtech has been uh, releasing new uh, like RCs or new betas, I guess. Is that release candidate? That would be considered a beta, right? Yeah. yeah it's it's like, a release candidate to testing. So it's beta, beta. All right. All right. And then they've also been uh, releasing, you know, quote unquote, stable versions of seven. So they've been kind of moving through. We've been seeing new stuff, new fixes, all kinds of stuff happening. Pretty regular, uh, much more frequent than we ever have before. So that's... Uh, very encouraging in my opinion, but we have 7.2 RC5. There were several things in there, but people pointed out, and I found very interesting, that they have BGP added advertisements uh, display. So I guess your outbound advertisements, you're able to see it. It looks like you have to set some kind of special option, output.keepsent attributes. I think somebody commented and said this is a stopgap in between them uh, fully fixing this feature option whatever it happens to be so that's encouraging right everybody's been complaining hey i can't see what advertisements my device is sending out and now you're going to be able to have the uh option to do that thoughts feelings opinions yay step in the right direction i mean <laughs> th there's a lot of stuff in this release though that was interesting there's a lot of stability improvements um especially around ospf i know that there's a pe some people who are doing some test equipment uh, that was having a lot of uh, neighborship drops and weird things that they couldn't sort of repeat. Uh, and it seems most of that stuff has been resolved with this update. Things are running pretty smooth. Low latency everywhere. <clears throat> Looks like they've got um, VRF support for DHCP v6 and a bunch of other cool stuff that was not in there before. So this is exciting. It's a big, big release. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you know what's fun is we see these releases and it's not just a little bug fix, little bug fix. It's like, here's something really cool, right? Like, and that's what you want to see in your betas, right? It's like, hey, here's these awesome new features or uh, here's this functionality that we're putting in place. So even if it's something that, uh, you know, in some people's opinion should have always been there, uh, the fact that it's showing up now, rock and roll, man, that gives me, uh, gives me hope, keeps me hopeful in these dark times that we live in, Nick. Yeah, I mean, as soon as I saw a little bit of GUI around zero tier, I felt like everything's going to be okay. You, know? <laughs> you felt like you just had a, a warm blanket pulled on top of you. Yeah, you ever it was do that? great. Like for me, like uh, whenever you're washing a blanket, I like to immediately pull it out of the dryer and just like cover myself like in a cocoon of, of warm I blanket. I got this thing. It's called a bed jet. A bed jet? Yeah. So it like, it's basically a small like air conditioning and heating unit that sits on the floor of the bed and it kind of comes up over the mattress and there's a turbo mode that cranks it up to like 102 <laughs> degrees and it feels like you're in the dryer so it's like the the ultimate experience you can have that anytime you want the bed jet i'm writing that yeah. down right now bed it's wild jet. and it cools too you said yep and there's like there's like a dry mode so it'll maintain the temperature so any sweat or anything it'll make sure to like keep you nice and cool then you can turn it up like an air conditioning make it nice and cold or you can use the turbo mode and feel like you're in a dryer <laughs> well i mean it's like um for us there's like in but like my wife and i in between us on the bed there must be like some kind of uh invisible divide because on her <laughs> side she sleeps with three blankets one of which is an electric <laughs> blanket and then oh, i wow. sleep with a blanket basically so thin it's transparent <laughs> and, and i'm always still too hot so never uh it could be cool i mean it's awesome i use it like every day is it pretty quiet yes all right all right i'm gonna look up the bed jet check it out <laughs> you'll get you'll get the sheet experience you'll get the cooling experience it'll change your life probably maybe i'm sold i'm gonna i'm gonna look it up uh that and a bidet and then i'm set right yep exactly yeah those bolt-on bidets I'm, I'm in it to win it anyway we've kind of gone tangential let's see what else uh uh, I saw somebody notice that uh, Arista is supposedly purchasing Untangled. Does that excite you in any way? Are you tingling? Indifferent. I mean, I've only seen Untangled stuff a couple times at like some really small like branch like banks and stuff for some managed service people. Um, I've never liked Untangled personally. So, is Untangled is that open source? I don't. I don't think so. Uh, but most of those projects end up being open source where you can bring your own hardware. I just have always seen the untangle boxes, like they're labeled untangle. What's their claim to fame? Is it like easy to have little snap-ins for like IDS, IPS, web filtering, that kind of thing? Is that why people like it? I don't know. I've, I've only, I've only seen them out in the wild. Um, so I'm not sure what their claim to fame would be. <clears throat> yeah. Me neither. There's an app section. We'll see what they have in their app section. Firewall, intrusion prevention, fish blocker, uh, threat prevention, virus blocker, ad blocker, spam blocker, web monitor, SSL. But yeah, it looks like you could just kind of snap in little little apps to add easy functionality, bandwidth control, WAN balancer. A lot of all the capability we're accustomed to. OpenVPN, WireGuard, Captive Portal, VPN Tunnel. No, zero tier. Get with the times, guys. What's wrong with you? Yeah, it's a problem. It's a huge problem. <laughs> Their <laughs> untangle also reminds me of like uh, 
whose logo is that? Like um, some ISP, one that sucks, Windstream. That's kind of what it looks like. <laughs> anyway, I digress on that as well. So I don't have anything new to talk about. We can rehash the old stuff. Do you have anything new, interesting, different? I wish. Unfortunately, I don't have anything new and interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I could I could talk about uh, stuff that I've been automating, but I really don't know that it applies to this audience. That could be pretty cool, though, because I think it only doesn't apply to the audience sometimes because pe some people are scared of automation, but <laughs> do well, some I'm, cool stuff. I'm automating stuff that I don't know that too many people touch. So I've been doing some work with uh, AWS. I needed to really dive in more, you know, like um, deploying AMIs or whatever, which are like, like pre-built little images of things. And you have like kind of like a virtual machine in there running. I don't know why anybody, why can't we just share common nomenclature for all the things? No matter what the platform is, it essentially does the same thing, but we have to call it something different on every platform. It always just confuses me. But I think it's just an AMI because it's Amazon's machine image. It's their own little flavor of Linux, but it's, yeah. So annoying. Anyway, I've got it where, um, <clears throat> you know, like in Ansible, you can pull in inventories from stuff dynamically which is really useful because you don't want to have to like statically maintain all that stuff. So you have your Ansible stuff, reach out and pull all that stuff in. And so working with Amazon, I've had a couple of questions and usually when I get the second time I get the same question, I'll go and actually do a bunch of research. Not that I don't research it before, but I'll really take time to put together like a demo and all that stuff. And on this one, I put together a demo on dynamically pulling that stuff in and, and then like in Amazon and really all the cloud providers, you can tag like all the little, you know, virtual machines, all the little servers you spin up with all kinds of stuff, like to be used in all kinds of different ways. Like, um, you know, you could tag the person's name onto it that, you know, and it's just an arbitrary string associated with it. So you could tag like their name or, um, I heard some people say that like whenever they do CICD, which is continuous integration, continuous development, the idea being you like make a code commit to a repository, like a Git repository, and it will, kick off a pipeline or call an action and the automation like build something. Well, the commit that the commit ID that actually made that change that built all this stuff, you can like tag all of your images with that commit ID. I thought that was kind of clever. So you know exactly like what piece of like what code version is tied to this or whatever. Um, or you can put like profit centers, like who's going to be paying for this thing, you know, all kinds of interesting information, but it gives you the ability to pull that stuff in dynamically and add those hosts to groups so that you can perform automation. Like, so everything that's considered a web server or everything that's, you know, the accounting app that's tagged accounting app, you can do automation against like very specific things or, uh, you know, and the automation could be change stuff, but a lot of times it's like collect information, right? Gather information, stuff like that. So it's, yeah. it was just kind of digging through the minutia. Um, sometimes the Ansible documentation will just tell you, and I don't know any other vendor that's like this. They'll just tell you what the knobs are, but not when you should turn them. So uh, in this uh, in this instance, it was kind of one of those. So it was a little bit of trial and error. And I usually like to try and take that information that I figure out and that make it human consumable. Uh, so just very nice of you. Like <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's um, it's good on multiple fronts. Whenever I create that stuff it's a refresher for me so I can go back in six months and I can figure out how that worked again and the beats I hit when I was talking about it. Um, but also I can share it with other people, right? It helps the community, but also it's a leave behind. So if I'm talking to a customer, it's got my name tagged on it, right? Gregsoul.com. So it's always building that brand. 
<laughs> you know, name recognition. So uh, all that stuff kind of helps, especially when like other people inside the company are sharing your materials. They'll never wonder uh, who it was that created it, right? Because it's mm -hmm. literally got my name on the URL. So, you know, brand yourself. Why not? Pretty cool. Yeah. Nick A at hey.com. Uh, so that's the kind of stuff I've been doing. Uh, I think that stuff's going to be a lot more important because <clears throat> as our technology in the Wisp industry gets uh, more complicated and as like the six gigahertz spectrum stuff opens up, there's going to be a lot more need for software. So people are going to probably need to be deploying stuff at some point. And so it'd be probably pretty good to familiarize yourself with tools and the ecosystems. And I know some people hate cloud, but you don't have to replace the hard drive when it fails. Um, you know, you can build in reliability. And so um, something I thought was interesting when uh, I was at Wisp America, <clears throat> most, Mimosa has a, uh, a cloud management platform that can manage uh, all of your equipment, but they also have a basically a one-time fee and they let you self-host it. And you can pop that on AWS or your own hardware. Um, and that sort of, connects all the devices in your network to that um, management server. And that communicates with like the licensing side for six gigahertz. So there's probably gonna be a lot more of that tooling and stuff coming out uh, to sort of manage equipment in this industry specifically, uh, things like managed routers. And so I think uh, people getting a little more accustomed to automation and stuff is gonna make it a lot easier to transition into that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah it's and coming. And like with cloud stuff, it's great for being able to um, uh, disaster recovery, like rebuild your infrastructure or uh, scale up, scale down, do compliance-based stuff. If you ever need to be audited, you can check all of that stuff. If there's a CVE, like a critical security vulnerability, you need to do an update, you can instantly, one, check, do all my systems have this vulnerability? And two, also do remediation. You don't have to mm -hmm. do it on the spot. You could schedule that stuff, have it happen uh, gracefully. I mean, it just... It gives you so many more options. I mean, um, especially as this stuff, I mean, it's like with the number of things we're being expected to manage continually growing and them not adding staff to our department, you got to do something, right? Like you have to have some semblance of a life. Uh, I think everybody that's probably listening to this has been entirely burnout, right? You, it, for me, it was very cyclical burnout. A little bit of recovery and relief for a little while, then burnout, back and forth, back and forth. And then, you know, you start learning tools and techniques to make that uh, time in between the burnouts longer and longer. And to me, automation is one of the big ones that can really help you with that stuff. That would be a cool opportunity for people to uh, share. I mean, you know, if you if you build something cool if, or if any of these tools come out in the industry and they're going to be common, like it'd be cool if people could contribute and share deployments i mean if you oh, could just absolutely pull something in and deploy it and you know it'll, it'll be a lot easier for people to kind of get into that yeah for sure man um what else oh i actually uh put one together i haven't made the blog post on it yet but i got engagement coming up soon and they really want to see this so i put time and energy into it <clears throat> it really didn't take too long so i did uh, zero touch provisioning on arista switches and i picked Arista specifically, so I researched several switch manufacturers. You got Arista, Cisco, Juniper. Really focus on those because guess what? That's most of what enterprise uses. Um, mm -hmm. I went with Arista because you can go to like arista.com right now, 
sign up for an account, pay nothing, and you'll get the VEOS images that you can run virtually. And it's you can lab pretty much anything you want. They don't have a lot of virtual interfaces normally associated with them. Uh, yeah. But they'll take all the configuration stuff. So especially if you're like testing automation or you're building things, it's amazing for that. So I did it with the VEOS stuff. But by default, when the Aristas boot up, if there's no configuration on them, they'll go into ZTP, like zero touch provisioning mode. And so they'll look for a boot P server and you just add like option 67, your boot P. I did it on my Microtik, right? Cause it's acting as my lab router and it hands them, oh, here's the address of a TFTP server that has a configuration file for you. So it'll go to that TFTP, it'll pull that down. And it's basically just a super basic configuration. And in there, I added a triggered script that on uh, like initial configuration boot, uh, it, it'll call uh, my Ansible automation platform. So it takes that configuration, reboots itself, comes back up. So it takes about, I've got it down here. Uh, it takes about five minutes from the time in my VMware environment, I click start, that'll go through that process pull the basic config, be on the network, and then call the Ansible Automation Platform. It's just making an API call. It's really legitimately in their configuration, it's a curl command. So it's issuing <laughs> a curl command uh, right at it. And uh, I'm gonna make a blog post that details all of this stuff. Awesome. It calls that, and so the Ansible Automation Platform then <clears throat> connects to that device and starts doing a configuration on it. But I'm doing it as infrastructure as code. And for those of you that aren't familiar with that, it's the idea that you take like your switch, your entire configuration, and you put it in a Git repository. You can break it down to its interstitial pieces, like the ACLs and then uh, the VLAN configuration stuff, the interface. I mean, you can break it down to all these little parts if you want, or you can have it as a big you know, config and you're dumping it in there. And you can either have it as um, a data model right? That just is meaningful to you, just like variable setup, or you can actually keep it in configurations, like actual command line stuff that you would put in. Um, I, um, I do a mix of both just to show people, like you can do it one way or the other. So I have yeah. it connect in with this workflow. So it calls the initial thing, does the zero touch and then fans out and in parallel starts configuring all of these various things. Um, I have it do uh, in parallel things that uh, don't necessarily rely on each other for configuration, but like First, like on this top one, I do VLAN database, right? So I'm adding the VLANs to the device. And then after that, I actually assign them to the interfaces and I have those linear, but down here I'm doing ACLs. And then down here I'm doing kind of any IP information configuration. Right? So you can kind of split off so it speeds up your automated configuration, but it's all predicated on what I have in, uh, in my Git repository. So say, for example, I'm going to deploy a new switch. I'm replacing an old one. I'll take its config and I'll break it into infrastructure as code pieces. And what I'm matching on is the serial number of the device. So the device uh, boots up generically, you know, it, all it has is just uh, a standard IP address that the boot, you know, the, the booting up uh, zero touch device will pull, calls in. And then when the automation platform connects and it pulls a serial number on the device, compares it, and then builds the config based on that. So pushes the hosting, pushes all the configs, uh, puts it all in there uh, kind of magically. And so start to finish, it takes about, give or take about six minutes for full config. So you just drop ship a router or a switch or whatever your device is out there. Um, it synchronizes the uh, configuration based on the serial number. So all those guys do is 
the tech or you know what the receptionist at the desk takes this thing plugs the power in plugs this cable into it and it will be up and ready to pass traffic in six minutes to me that's pretty that's volatile. a dream yeah that's so a dream you, you lose a device what do you do you drop ship another one change the serial number in your system and it just magically configures it so you like never touch these pieces of kit ever again and even then it'll I mean, you can have it update the firmware version on that device. Like all of this can be rolled into that. So to me, that actually is pretty bonkers. Awesome. I wish Microtech did something a little bit closer to that for um, zero touch provisioning stuff. I know they sort of have it into some stuff, but it's not. You could do it with uh, standardized like this. You can do it like TRO six nine, or you could do it with. Uh... Uh, net install, but that all requires you to take it out of the box first and do that. So that is definitely uh, something interesting. But that's always something that comes up on a security situation, like doing that in the, such a way that it's uh, not going to be exploited in some way. I mean, there's probably standards and handshake stuff they can do to make sure it's safe, but that would be super useful. Just drop ship, take it out, plug it in. They're actually doing that a lot with uh, Windows machines. So um, I think they got they have something called Autopilot, and it's part of like a managed service suite for Microsoft. And um, you can order like a laptop from somewhere, and uh, you just put the serial number in. And when they take it out of the box, they unpack it, they they cut open the seal on everything, fresh out of box experience. They power it up once it c connects to the internet. Like your company's info is already on the laptop, and it's starting to. Um, automatically install all your stuff, your group policies and stuff as they're unboxing and they have no clue. So being able to do that on the network as well would be pretty wild. Yeah, it's pretty baller. I mean, <clears throat> this doesn't apply to some of the people on here, but I know a lot of people do uh, take care of enterprise environments. So imagine you're doing a hardware refresh on an enterprise that has a thousand switches that you're going to be replacing. You know, do you want to take each one of those, pop them out of the box, pre-configure it, make sure it's working, put it back in the box, ship it to the remote site, or do you just want to have this crap drop ship to the sites and people just, you know, slam a cable into it and then bop, just move the cables down, bop, 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 be done. So to me, it's, um, it's a lot more efficient as well as you have your change control and revision control, like all documented associated with all this stuff. I mean, that's kind of one of the cool parts about uh, change management. Like if you're going to be, uh, updating your configuration inside of a Git repository. Whenever you make the commit, you know, like the merge request or whatever, you have notes in there. Another tech is going to look at that and then they'll approve the merge that goes in. And now you have like a full chain of custody on everything that happened, you know, in that configuration. So uh, a lot of companies we talk to uh, have compliance requirements, either industry-based or, you know, just corporate policies. And that stuff has to be carefully documented. And this absolutely fits the bill for that. Makes life easier. Well, maybe some of this automation stuff is interesting to people listening. I was thinking it wasn't, but lo and behold. Well, we've we've some got some people in the in the Slack group that are sharing some Ansible stuff and some automation stuff. Seems like there's some interest. So it's cool. <laughs> if you If you like technology, automation's cool. All right. Well, you ready to get into the uh, two-week-old information? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, obviously, I don't want to get into the political aspects of these things. So, just strictly, strictly sticking to the 
Uh, and Miller was on that last one. He had some really good thoughts and notes on this. So it's just going to be, uh, I mean, uh, we're going to uh, suffer from having him not here. So I, I apologize for everybody for missing those notes. But um, we wanted to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that's been happening as far as network related things go with the Russia conflict going on right now. I guess we'll, is that what we're calling it? The Russian conflict, the Russian incident? What do you want to call it, Nick? Spaghetti uh, incident? The the current day tragedy. Yeah. I don't know. This this all kinds of weird language. Like you don't wanna I don't know. It's tough. It's sad. Yeah. There's gonna be some automated system that picks up uh, me saying Russia <laughs> on uh YouTube and it's gonna categorize Probably. me some certain way. But um there have been some interesting technical things that have happened associated with that and just wanted to talk a little bit about them. Uh because some of this stuff is somewhat unprecedented. We haven't seen it before, and some of the requests are unprecedented. So first and foremost, um, early in the conflict, uh, Ukraine asked ICANN if they would revoke all of Russia's uh, top-level domains, right? So like the .ru stuff and things like that. And I believe uh, ICANN basically said, we're this neutral party. We don't deal in politics or anything. Like we... we set ourselves aside from that and they said it would be uh, devastating they said the effect would be devastating uh and i guess to i mean i don't know that they necessarily said devastating in what ways or to whom but i think you can infer from that it means you know basically the russian people and uh the ones that are you know innocent bystanders and all this still just trying to live and use the internet as it were um i mean that would be uh, pretty devastating on their infrastructure. I mean, they would have to try and stand up their own DNS resolvers and they would have to mirror, I guess, all that top level domain stuff to their infrastructure and then have everybody ultimately point towards those DNS servers to make sure that stuff resolved in a timely manner. Um, so that could be hairy. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Nick? It seems like a pretty big undertaking if the plug suddenly got pulled. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> they've talked a lot about uh, building stuff in their network countrywide to be able to pull a kill switch and cut them off from the rest of the world for security reasons. So I'm sure some of these things are some of these mitigations are already in place. Um, you know, it's unfortunate because it punishes all of the people, not just the the people who are doing bad things. Um, but I think. The idea is to try to pressure it from all sides to try to get this thing over with. And unfortunately, that just means internet connectivity services, access to things in the rest of the world is going to be cut off from them. Um, and I hope it makes a significant impact. But man, that's, that's going to be hard to deal with, especially in, in the middle of everything, uh, depending on how much preparation they've had. I can't even imagine having to deal with that. Yeah, well... There, um, one of the other things, <clears throat> I mean, among many, we have a lot on the list here, is that um, Russia is creating its own certificate authority. Uh, the idea being that a lot of uh, people were using, you know, certificate authorities outside of the country or, um, you know, they were either outright blocked from being able to get certificates from those people or uh, due to most of the banking, you know, like the SWIFT system shutting down and things like that, those Russian organizations weren't able to actually pay those third parties to get certificates or whatever. So they had to kind of uh, immediately 
uh, move and do something. And I think I think at the time of writing, they were saying that Russia's telling everybody that, you know, if you make a request to us, we'll be able to service you within five days to give you a certificate. But it also um, introduces the concept of, oh, if the Russian government are the ones issuing us the keys, you know, then what's going to keep them from you know, effectively man in the middling our traffic or snooping on anything that we have going through here. And I think some of the major banking institutions were the first ones to pick up these certs. And I'm, I'm guessing uh, anybody else that wants to keep the little lock symbol in the browser has been following suit. That uh, seems a little scary to me. That's very scary. <clears throat> yeah, because that definitely hurts more than just uh, the military. I mean, the common person now, I mean, with that instituted, they don't know whether to trust communications as being secure or not. And they'll have to take um, extra measures to ensure that security stuff is there. So that's a pretty unfortunate side effect, I think. Mm. What are you going to do? Let's see what else did we have on here. There's been several suspensions of service. So Lynx, which I believe is the London Internet Exchange, bopped them off. So Russia got bopped and then Cogent pulled out of the company or the country. Um, not just connectivity wise. I think they were one of the major carriers uh, that connected them there. Of course, Russia said that, you know, we have plenty of other backup carriers, so no big deal there. Um, to me, it seemed like the most impactful piece of Cogent pulling out was not only did they pull connectivity, right, like transport or whatever, but they also rescinded all of their IP space that they had handed out. So that could be much more problematic. It's substantial. Yeah. So that could be, I mean, large portions of Russian networks could have just gone dark overnight from them pulling that IP space. So that kind of sucks for those folks. Um, I think also Lumen... Uh, Lumen pulled out, but they were saying they really only had a handful of enterprise customers there. So I don't know that it's as big an impact as, say, uh, for example, Cogent pulling out. But, you know, a lot of um, carriers, you know, just part of uh, additional sanctions. I, and that's that was one of the things we had mentioned previously, I think, was that uh, with all the sanctions going in, you know, the thought was Lumen... And Cogent pulled out. And some people were arguing that, well, you know, why would you leave... Um, if they're a customer that's still paying and all these things. And what's well, also the idea that these are US based companies and with all the restrictions in place, how are these companies supposed to continue paying with all of the sanctions in right. place, right? It's the same thing with certificate authorities. If people can't pay to renew certificates, how are they gonna pay their bill here? So, you know, maybe a preemptive strike is a very prudent move as opposed to just, you know, yeah, going to collections, which I'm pretty sure you're not going to collect any money out of the Russian government right now if you're a U.S. entity. So makes sense, I suppose, in that respect. And it seems like kind of a bittersweet, you know, or maybe like um, one of those swords that cuts both ways with the sanctions, right? Yes, yes, we are, like you said earlier, Nick, um, you know, like, uh, I guess, putting punishments in place for bad behavior. Uh, which would negatively impact the government, which hopefully can move the needle towards the direction of peace. But also it's hurting the innocent people that are there simultaneously, you know, and then also, you know, with the certificate of story stuff, you know, making them theoretically less safe 
to speak their minds, which I'm sure a lot of them were already afraid to do to begin with. And I don't know. It's just and also like, even if, uh, you know, things eventually unwind and kind of go back to normal, are they going to want to keep that certificate authority, authority ownership in just in case something happens again? Like, are they going to want to enforce that they keep that infrastructure in place? That's another interesting thing to see what happens out of this, or is it just going to be business as usual yeah, <laughs> that a, once money starts flowing? That's a pretty common practice by governments, right? Once you get you have a people to relinquish, relinquish a freedom, you hang on to that, right? You never give that freedom Valuable, back to Valuable, yeah. Yeah. And so you just kind of take a little bit more freedom, a tiny bite at a time. Well, this isn't a tiny bite. This is a big bite in my opinion. But um, unprecedented circumstances are allowing them to do that, right? And but generally, that's what they do, right? They kind of slowly erode uh, away at you, you know? They just take a little more, take a little more, and don't tend to give that back, especially kind of an authoritarian government like that. I don't, I don't foresee yeah. them rescinding that. I, I can see them wanting to stay in the middle of everybody's communication, even if they're not really taking advantage of it today because it sounds like they're in panic mode and just trying to make this stuff work. That doesn't mean tomorrow they won't because you absolutely know uh, that that implication existed in their minds the instant they stood the certificate authority up. And probably how they, you know, got uh, got approval for it so quickly was probably one of the reasons there. Mm -mm -mm. I think I also read that um, uh, the Russian government was pulling back uh, like, I mean, really early days, pulling back any infrastructure they had outside, especially government related, pulling all of that inside just because of the number of hack attempts, the DDoSes mm -hmm. that were hitting all their stuff. Not that that's lessened. I saw a news article by, um, gosh, I don't know. It was maybe, I don't know. I, it was a, a somewhat well-known name and it read about how uh, teenagers everywhere are DDoSing government, Russian government resources. And they are like, it's really easy to do. It was almost like, hey, you should go do this. Like the way it was written and the quotes <laughs> they had, it was like, everybody like, should be doing this. It was just hilarious. Like it's basically one click now. You can do all these easy things to DDoS these people. <laughs> it's like, oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. I guess recruit uh, all these hapless teenagers to go out there and do stuff yeah, and you got a bunch of uh, younger people who uh want to contribute but don't necessarily want to go to ukraine and get armed up because <laughs> they're just letting people go there and they'll suit them up so it's like well you can just hack from your desk and and make a difference <laughs> yeah i mean truly they I probably can in some way i don't know honestly i don't know if i'd want to be uh on a list of potential bad actors from a government agency that says, we know that these people were trying to hurt our systems. <laughs> I'm willing to bet they have blanket blocks from us. Like, you know, huge portions, huge swaths of the internet must be blocked at least uh, to the vast majority. I'm sure it's still allowed to, you know, they're, um, they're already not allowed most of the content and services. So they might as well just block all the block, the IP blocks. At that point, they can't watch anything or consume any of the services that yeah. we have. Well, so. I just think of like the uh, 
the hacking arm of the government, I'm sure still has full access to all the U S resources, but you know, like the average, the average Russian I'm sure is uh, completely blocked from those subnets at this point. I mean, you would assume they are right. Unless they want uh, outbound traffic, not necessarily, <laughs> you know, maybe they have uh, you know, if you uh, known traffic, like if you initiate a connection out, you're allowed to uh, have it returned that way they can, uh, use all the Russian people's machines to DDoS out if they feel like it. <laughs> Anybody's machine inside that they've compromised and added to their botnet, they'll continue to utilize that. Government warfare, cyber warfare is wild. Look at that. I know we had talked to, I had talked to somebody, I don't know that they, I don't think they've said it publicly, but they were saying that, um, their organization saw like three weeks prior to the invasion, like, uh, uh, cyber activity coming out of Russia, like ramp up drastically for three weeks, just skyrocketing. And then the invasion happened and then, yeah, it just kept, kept going up, I guess. So yeah, definitely a lot of activity has been coming out of there. Wacky wild stuff. And a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff with the propaganda engines. I was hearing about how they are recruiting like Russian TikTokers to, uh, spread propaganda, you know, like show propaganda videos and stuff like that. And, uh, one of my thoughts about that is that's a really tough spot to be in. Cause I don't think these teenagers are doing this like maliciously. I think mm -hmm. the government right? That can make you disappear shows up and says, Hey, you need to do this. I think you probably do it. Right. Just for your safety, your country. And safety of your family. Yeah. So rocking a hard place, man. I just, I feel for all those people, uh, that, uh, are trapped and don't have any way of not being part of this machine. And obviously, you know, the, the people on the other end of the, the gun barrel, I really feel for them. So it's, uh, seems like this is going to be with us for a while. So <laughs> like I, I likened it last time to uh, COVID and that uh, I remember uh, early in, uh, I think we did a podcast and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to talk about this once and then I'll, hopefully I won't ever have to talk about this again. And, you know, here we are two years later and it's still, still sort of with us for the most part. So I hope that uh, this Russian thing, I could say that again, like, hey, we're talking about it now and, uh Hopefully soon we won't have to talk about it anymore, but I feel like that's probably not an accurate statement. Do you have anything you want to bring it up with? Cause that was pretty much a downer. Mm. <laughs> no pressure, Nick. Bring me up, bring me up on a high note. What's something uh, new or interesting you've been working on? You've been working on a lot of documentation lately, right? Yeah. Um, What's your, what's your favorite? Just, Are you doing any video documentation? Cause I find that highly, uh, effective to have. Like, I really like, I'd like to, it. I mean, uh, that's something I really want to focus time on in the near future because I've got all this equipment and, uh, I've got like a, a drawing display to like annotate and stuff. So I want to start doing that a lot more. Obviously that takes a lot of time. I mean, editing stuff takes a long time. Um, Oh, you edit but, stuff. Oh, yeah, wrong, you got to <laughs> you gotta put like weird memes and stuff in it and weird sound effects. Like you gotta freak the, the consumer out. Yeah. Well, if the <laughs> consumer is like uh, people inside the company, then do you really care if they get freaked out? I mean, they might have more fun with it. 
Oh, maybe. <laughs> they'll, they'll remember that part because they got scared or they saw something weird, so they'll remember the topic, I'm sure. Yeah. I'll have to try it, that out. I find it highly effective having both, like written documentation, and then you go over it, um, just talking about it in video form. You know, you're clicking around and stuff. To me, that's uh, belt and suspenders. And also, you always end up giving extra information in the video thing that you would have never thought to put in the uh, the plain written documentation. That's always like super useful for me. And also sometimes yeah. I just get so lazy that I don't want to write the documentation, so I'll just make the video and call it good. And the visual aid's really helpful. I mean, watching someone pilot something versus trying to take screenshots and put a little bit of notes and then screenshots, a little bit of notes. It's harder to consume, especially when you can do like one and a half or two times speed oh, to kind of like time. get through the video. It's super handy. Just takes time to make that compared to paper documentation. You think so? Like to me, paper documentation probably takes twice as long for me to record the video thing. Guess it depends on uh, the scope. Oh, so like, I don't know, man. Cause like I can just start talking. Like I can hit record on my screen and just start talking and click, 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 move, 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 move. Pretty but you gotta also, uh, like if you wanted to do like something really in depth, it helps to sort of like pace it out into smaller, like three to five minute clips so that it's easier to like break the content up. You know, when you've got something that's like an hour long and you don't have like timestamps, it's hard to like find what you're looking for. So uh, you got to put a little thought into like um, how to break it up into chunks so that they can kind of jump into that thing, like watch the clip real quick. Um, at least that's that's what I would like. <laughs> So uh, I think some people would just not bother if it's like really long and they're trying to like figure out how to do something internally in the company. At least they can do control F and search through electronic documentation. So I guess it just depends. Oh yeah. Cause like, like written documentation, scroll, scroll, scroll. My favorite way of consuming stuff is via written documentation. My favorite <laughs> way of giving it to producing people is videos <laughs> just cause it's so much easier. Watch me. <laughs> But yeah, that's kind yeah. of like burned into my brain from um, doing the LinkedIn learning stuff. It's like people learn different ways and you have to like reinforce it, right? So really having the written as well as the video uh, stuff can be highly effective. And um, for me, I just don't like it because it's usually slow and paced. But yeah, putting it on like 2x speed is generally where it's at for me. Like if I find a resource and all they have is a video, that kind of annoys me. I usually want something written as well if I can find it, but... Yeah, like for really complicated stuff, uh, like especially software, open source, especially with commercial support, a lot of times they have pretty decent documentation. Hmm. So um, usually I try to pick tools that I don't have to do too much of that specifically unless there's like a workflow related problem or um, something that's a little tricky that's not explained very well in the documentation. Like those would be super valuable to have videos for, especially the workflow stuff, like process stuff. Um but, you know, a lot of the good tools, if you're evaluating software, you should also see, you know, how good is their documentation? How often do they update it? Um, when they do software updates, do they keep the documentation in sync? And if so, that should definitely be used as a resource. That way you don't have to, you know, write your own copy when you can get it from the source. Yeah, for sure, man. I, I've never thought about that, like evaluating somebody based on what their documentation looks like. I mean, it yeah. absolutely makes sense. It's like, uh, would you rather use uh, some American product or a Chinese one with like, you know, like um, whenever you're doing fiber to the home stuff, you know, it's like, am I going Calyx or am I going 
Huawei. You know, it's like one mm-hmm. you have uh, probably some good documentation and support. One maybe oh, it's gonna be a little questionable. I think it, if a company is willing to uh, sit down and flush out like really nice to consume documentation, they also probably have a lot of passion around the project. So it's I don't know. It kind of it kind of like sets. Uh, an expectation when you look at like really clean nice well thought out documentation it's like they probably care a lot uh they probably spend a lot of time and focus on that when something doesn't have documentation at all um things are probably going to break things are probably going to be less trustworthy uh support is probably not going to be as good but companies who document very well and meticulously they tend to give excellent support or they can at least get you to the right part of the documentation and i think that's super important especially if you're looking to uh, outsource something complicated to a piece of software and you're going to pay for commercial support from a company. I think that's a, that's a huge red flag on like how they document the tool. Yeah, for sure. I think I want to say Thomas, Thomas Kernak, the maker of Unimus. You should check that out. Was it Unimus.net? <laughs> Excuse me. Hiccup right there. And the, what I was saying, Unimus.net. Um, I think he was saying that a lot of times for like features or whatever, that they'll write the documentation first and then Amazing. put the code in place. Right. It's like that, like is kind of mind blowing uh, for me, especially like working with so much open source software, the idea that the documentation is usually the very last thing that ever gets done. And it's, it's because Dell, well, I don't know if it's, this is necessarily the thing, but it seems like developers aren't really great documenters okay. like on features and uh, you know, fleshing out, you know, narratives on why you would use something and things like that. Um, so the idea that, oh, you have to write the docs first, have them be intelligible and then actually make the features match that. That's like pretty amazing. And he does pretty good job at, um, showing examples. A hard part about a tool like Unimus is, uh, it's very configuration, like scripty based. And so some of the cool features, like things like tagging or regular expression matching, like that stuff's pretty complicated. So. Um, if you're not a regular expression type person, it's important to have good documentation to understand how to use the thing. So it makes a lot of sense to uh, document it first to figure out like how how is this going to look for a consumer of the product? Like, is this something that the average person is going to be able to figure out before you go ahead and build the thing? Because um, you know, it's there's a lot of applications that's like it's almost an exact copy of the database in tables in an app, like every page is tables. You can create stuff, delete stuff, but there's not a lot of focus for some things on how to make it easy on the user to consume some stuff that doesn't matter, kind of abstracting that away into more clever controls. And so that's really cool. um, When people take the time to document that and think of it from the consumer's perspective, like as also like how many support calls is this going to generate? If I release this feature and it's complicated. Mm -hmm. So if you can do any, anything you can to, document it, show examples, um, or videos, people like videos or, um, tag and resources like that probably makes everything across the board a lot simpler. Yeah. I like how he does a lot of blog posts as well with his product. So it's a lot of, um, I'm guessing he takes like the most common ask he gets or, or mm-hmm. common questions and he'll turn them into a blog post. So uh, that definitely benefits both parties, right? Like you said, lower support calls, but also, uh, lowers the barrier of entry on your product, so people are gonna, you know, be more, uh, more I guess, quicker to adopt it. 
as well as, you know, recommend it to other people. If it's really obtuse and difficult, I'm probably going to be a little bit more hesitant to say, Hey, you should use, you know, probably use this thing. But if you know, you're making it, um, lowering the barrier of entry, I suppose, by adding all those blog posts and things like that and writing them for humans, right. That Mm -hmm. maybe, um, don't know how to go all the way from A to Z and you're, you're, you know, you're connecting all those dots for me. A lot of times that makes a big difference to me, especially. Yeah. And a lot of learners. It's one of the things they teach us at, uh, uh, LinkedIn learning. Like before it was lynda.com. My brain always wants to say lynda.com, but, uh, there it's, it's really like, you have to assume that most of these folks aren't super familiar with it. Right. And also one of the other things they teach you is never say we, we're going to do this. Because they say uh, the other person might not be doing it with you. So you just have to say, I, I'm doing this. That's interesting. Yeah. So I try to remember to do that. I guess some, some people that drives them crazy or something, it's like maybe they <laughs> feel guilty. Like, oh my God, I should be doing something. But uh, That's yeah. good to know. <laughs> I've never, never thought about that. Anybody that. There's a lot of interesting things that I've learned from there. Hmm. So you have to uh, remove all of the we, us. You don't get to say either. So you just like find all of those and then rewrite all of your stuff whenever you put that in there. And yeah, there's uh, no controversial topics. So one time I said, stick to your guns, be sure to stick to your guns and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, no, you can't put anything about guns in there. You're gonna have to change that. You're, you're talking to people about guns, Greg. (laughs) (laughs) It might trigger somebody. Oh, (laughs) pun intended. Oh no. (laughs) Sorry to any listeners that uh, were triggered by that. No, but I get it. It's like, you know, just little uh, little things that wouldn't even normally register in my brain. It's like stuff yeah. to kind of look out for or whatever. It's tricky when uh, teaching people things because um, especially when things are highly technical, it's easy for people to be a little bit prideful and a little bit insecure. And so sometimes it just takes the wrong word or the wrong phrasing for someone to be really put off and abrasive. Um, and that's really important to navigate when trying to like teach somebody something right yeah well you know like what i run into a lot is um i'll go into an environment where obviously i'm a sales guy now and i'm selling a specific product and that product is ansible and it's automation and we have competitors and so i'll go into an environment where they have a competitor's product embedded so sometimes it's um a very careful dance Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, very uh, careful with your wording, careful with things you say. Like I am, I am never disparaging of anybody else's product because I believe that most of these people are probably putting out solid things that work really yeah. well in certain environments or for certain situations. You know, and that's great. So I never, I never speak to anybody else's stuff. I just talk about. Uh, what I know and what my things do and how I can help these people. And also to me, <clears throat> if you try and say anything negative about their product, right, that they've dedicated years to time and energy and they know it. Um, it's almost an insult. You never product. know when you're going to call yeah. their baby ugly, right? Or if you say something wrong and they do know way more about that than you, guess what they're going to do now is they're going to kind of, you know, discount anything you have to say from right. this point forward, right? So they, they may stop listening. They may turn off completely, you know, who knows? So, um, sometimes you have to be careful with that stuff. You're very, uh, measured or metered or oftentimes you can say the same thing in 10 different ways and receive 10 different reactions, right? Some of those positive, some of them negative. So you just have to be careful sometimes. 
but not everybody's a sales guy. So sometimes you can just speak your mind, I guess. True. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's similar when you're, you know, mentoring juniors or you're, you're training employees in your organization. Like if you're bringing someone in as a network engineer to your WISP, it's important to, um, try to foster an environment where it's comfortable for people to admit that they don't know something because oh. at the end of the day, you're going to put them on your network and they should feel comfortable to say they don't understand something. And you might have to change your approach with different people because not all people learn the same. So I think that's important to focus on because that's, I don't see that a lot out in the wild. Hmm. A lot of people get their egos tied in with what they do. And so, yeah, you have to be careful because you know, you really could uh, be hurting your relationship with somebody. And if you're a manager, that's the last thing you want to do is right. Have like a, an employee that um, one is like disenfranchised and go silent, then they're just going to leave, you know, or they're going to drag their feet. And that just, you know, it's, it's not an environment for them. And it's not a good environment for you. The, the net result is, is bad on both accounts. And so, you know, got to be mindful of that stuff sometimes and fostering that open environment where people can have a conversation. And you know what I've noticed, um, I've learned and I truly think feedback is a gift. And so anybody that wants to email me, give me feedback. I always appreciate it. Good or bad. As long as you're respectful, you know, as long as you're doing it out of kindness, like you want me to be better. I want to be better. Yeah. So I, I genuinely, um, I genuinely enjoy it. Like I, like if you see, I can be better at something, tell me about it. You know, if I've got a booger on my face, tell me about it. You know, don't let me walk around like that. Um, but I've noticed most people aren't really that comfortable with receiving feedback, nor are they mm -hmm. comfortable giving feedback, right? Cause it's all people want to say is positive things. It's like, I'm not really going to grow necessarily from positive right. things. Maybe it'll show me things that I can, um, continue to do or maybe do more of because I'm doing uh, well in those areas. But you know, if I, I lack in some place, let me know. Help me, help me be uh, better. Yeah. We all should be growing and changing all the time, right? I mean, if you've got peers and you've got team members, um, it's not like you versus them. You guys are delivering whatever your business serves, it, whether it's internet service, whether it's software. Uh, at the end of the day, you're all representing the same company and you're presenting yourself to customers. So why not throw somebody a bone and say, hey, uh, I think you approached this a little bit wrong and you might want to think about it from this perspective. So then you can sort of reflect and do better. And, and you sh everyone should be encouraging everybody to do better. Yeah. As long as it's from that mindset of yeah. delivering a better service, delivering a better product and not like, you know, prideful. Like I'm, I know I'm better than you cause you're doing this really stupid. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, something that stood out to me is like have been a manager for so long is that you said uh, you've been doing this wrong and I've learned to approach it a different way. It's like, you know, I would have done this in this different way because I saw you got this result and that's probably not what you were looking for, right? It was like customers really upset. Maybe if you approach it in this way or that way, you know? So it's like the implication is there that they could have done it better, which yeah. ultimately means you did it wrong. But sometimes <laughs> some people just hearing that word, you did it wrong. You know what I mean? It's like, you'd be right. Now, like, now it's an attack and I got to defend myself, right? Exactly. So. Fight or flight kicks yeah. in, man. You can't, you know, you can't help that stuff. A friend of mine, um, I'm not going to say their name, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Like their, their boss <clears throat> corrected him on something that had been like outstanding for a couple of months and they should have been correcting him on it 
the entire time. Yeah, like right away. Reviewing every week, they should have been correcting, but they waited until it was like red hot fever pitch, and then oh, finally said something, and then also never said, "You're okay." You know, we'll get this fixed. You're not going to get fired. They never said any of that. So it's like, wow, just like, setting up for failure. Wow, you totally screwed all this up. And then like silence. It's like, oh my gosh. So now my friend is like just sweating, you know, just like wow. dripping. <laughs> you know, it's like that, that uh, key and peel uh, Jeff where he's, he's frozen. There's sweat just dripping down his face. You know, because it's like, am I going to get fired over this? Yeah, so it's like you don't know. They're not going to tell you until last minute. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of those things, right? It's like you could course correct and then assure them, right? Because to me, that's always the an important part too. It's like course correct and assure. Because it's like uh, you know, that's ultimately that's what a lot of us are afraid of, right? It's like if I do a bad job, what is the ultimate outcome? You know, right. most of the time, it's just they're going to say, "Hey, don't do that anymore," or maybe a slap on the wrist. You're not going to get fired, but that always sort of looms in the back of, I think, most people's minds and uh, your employees are no exception. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Hey, man, well, I think we've beaten that dead horse. You got anything else? You ready to stick a fork in it? We could stick a fork in it. All right. It looks delicious. Looks ready to go. I put the toothpick in. I pulled it out. It's clean. So it's done. Ooh, perfect. I, I got to let it set. Got to let it cool, Nick. Don't eat it too fast. I'm going to burn the roof of my mouth. I'm fine. It smells good. <laughs> you know what? More power to you. Um, I can't control that, you know? So I have to learn to let the things out of my control go, and maybe you'll learn a lesson. So Nick Arellano, if people out on the internet want to interact with you, which why wouldn't they? Because you're Hot Nick. Wasn't that your nickname? Isn't it Hot Nick? Oh, no, I, I have so many. Uh, I'd have to, have to look through the Rolodex there. I can't remember. I'll have to. I'll have to check the uh, the instant replay. I'll check the tapes on that one. All right, Nick. If uh, folks out on the internet want to get a hold of you, how would you have them do that? You can email me at nick.a at hey.com, or of course, you can become a patron and jump into the Slack group, where there's a bunch of other cool people in there too that can also interact with you. Rock and roll, man. I can dig it. If you want to find me, I'm Greg at gregsoul.com or you go to gregsoul.com where I'm blogging a lot more frequently. Uh, also, I mean, I, yeah, just email me there. Whatever. If you have any questions or comments, just email me there. You know how email works. You guys are technologically savvy. Um, I guess if, yeah, question, comments, keep coming. Nick, thank you for uh, joining tonight. And uh, we'll see you folks later. Let me hit stop on the recording. And I said that for Tommy. Don't think we haven't. Uh, don't think we've forgotten about you. We're informative facts. We're not disappointing. Just give us a listen. Because fun is the mission. I'm telling you, you don't know what you are missing.